So constructive institutionalism is when leaders sit down and act like everything's going to work out, even though by the numbers, there's no reason to think that it will work out. <laughs> and they make you feel good. And they make you feel good. <laughs> and so that, 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 Wow, he was so inspiring. Yeah, we're not, we're not doing shit. <laughs> but yeah. I feel good. And every organization's interests are toward constructive institutionalism because, you know, it's, it'll just make you feel better. Uh, and government is so guilty of this all the time. I, was, I said to a, a group of business leaders the other day, I was like, look, you've all been named to these government honorary advisory boards and whatnot. And we know you do not do shit. You get together, you take a photo op, it looks like everyone's on board, and you go home and you do nothing. Mm-hmm. So that that's the nature of the problem uh, that I defined as constructive institutionalism in my book. And I got to say, that chapter, I wrote that in like the middle of the night where I was like having dark Just thoughts. Yeah. And, I, I, and then I woke up the next morning being like, I, I'm going to read what I wrote and see if it, it's like, you know, uh, acceptable. And I, it ended up being one of my favorite It's your best chapters. chapter. Uh, I would argue that's a chapter that why, definitely for me and probably you too, why you ran for president, why I joined you, why I just clicked. Hey everyone, welcome back. Me and Zach are in the studio to talk the Trump SPAC, constructive institutionalism. What the heck is that? <laughs> Why so many of us don't know where to turn to for information or, or news anymore. But let's get started with the news that was all over the internet and mainstream uh, news sources. Trump has a special purpose acquisition company. It's a bit of a gimmick. It's a bit of a gimmick. So so for those of you who don't know what a SPAC is, check it out. Okay. A SPAC is you go to the public markets and say, hey, we're raising money to buy a private company to be named later sometime in the next two years to do whatever we sketch our plan out to be. Now, sometimes the plans aren't that, shall we say, robust. <laughs> <laughs> and in this case, though, this company was meant to start Truth Social Media, a whole new Parallel social media network or plural networks. So think a new Facebook, a new Twitter. New Netflix. A new Netflix. Wow, I didn't know that was digital. on there. Yeah, it's, it's social and then digital like, streaming content. Wow, no wonder they raise so much money. It's I'm kidding. Trump Me- Media and Technology Group, TMTG, has raised the IPO'd at $9.96, 94 somewhere around there. And at one point, it was over $94 in terms of what it's trading. That's uh, a lot of money that is raised. And it's a bit of a meme stock, too. So those of you who follow Wall Street Bets, which we've covered on this show, uh, you may have gotten in on this. And we will not say this is a good investment or not. I'm going to plead the No investment advice here <laughs> on the Forward Podcast. So this is a fascinating play. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most of us are immediately dubious because Trump has a storied track record of throwing his name on businesses that may be more sizzled than steak, shall we say? And nice. There's a, there's a Trump steak Nicely joke done. in there. <laughs> so I saw this and thought to myself, who in the Trump universe could possibly create a Facebook rival or a Twitter rival or a Netflix rival? And the answer is nobody knows. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like it's unclear whether they could muster the type of talent and personnel to get that done because a lot of the tech talent, frankly, does not want to hang out with the Trump universe and throw their name on things. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is 
this real sense of, you know, um, polarization, um, shall we say. And uh, on this side, I will say that uh, I'm dubious. <laughs> I'll, throw that, I'll throw that out there. Now, whether they can pull this off. Um, but there, there is something really interesting and powerful about this, uh, where you do have these quasi-monopolies that now are valued at, let's call it a trillion dollars plus. Right. And so if someone credible comes along and makes a business case that we can create a challenger to the monopoly, uh, investors can legitimately get excited and imagine it uh, becoming very, very valuable. If you're speculative, you're a venture investor or you're high risk, high reward type, this makes sense to, you know, because the upside is very, very high. Um, I would say, so I read the deck. I read the pitch deck. Nice Did some work. homework for this episode, who folks. Knew, who knew that Zach worked on Wall Street? So you I don't did. have to. So here's what it says they're going to do. The, the TMTG, asp- I'm going to quote here, aspires to create a media powerhouse to rival the liberal media consortium and fight back against the big, quote, big tech, close quote, companies of Silicon Valley who have used their unilateral power to silence opposing voices in America. And so... And if you look through this, there's a bunch of media headlines talking about how Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, Wikipedia, Apple, and Stripe have all banned Donald Trump or conservative uh, personalities. They did have an interesting point where Twitter banned Donald Trump but um, allowed the spokesperson from the Taliban to keep their account. So I I get some of the frustration, if you will, on that side. Um, They talked about every major media outlet in the United States. So they started with newspapers and then radio and cable TV and now social media eventually splits on ideological lines. And they had a bunch of examples of this. And this is the point that they're making is that they're going to lead the newest split. Um, Here's my one comment. I will say it did look like a lot of decks I had made back on. um, Did you make this deck, Zach? I did not make this deck. But my (laughs) point was that I could have made this deck. Was that it was one of those decks that like tells a fun story but there's no meat. And so any real investor would be like, that sounds great. Show me your numbers. Um, or in this case, they're just or essentially and, betting and, on the Trump the, name. The thing I would think would be like, show me the team. Show me yeah. like who the heck is actually going to build this Correct. thing. Correct. So a, a couple of fun things. So slide nine is just a graph of the U.S. population. <laughs> Growing. <laughs> Saying that because the population is bigger, they will be ripe for further segmentation. That was hilarious. I uh, got to say that, that that makes a pretty good business case for starting anything <laughs> under the sun. You know, it's like, the, I'm There's gonna, more people. You can umbrella, do more business. Yang's Umbrella Co. Here's a slide. <laughs> More people, hence more need for umbrellas. Uh, one was just showing how many social media followers Trump has. Uh, 146.6 million across Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, slide 11 is actually helpful to size the digital media market, whether it's Netflix or uh, Twitter or various... Listen to you, Zach. Sounds like you Plus. want to invest in this thing. Uh, I like the macro play. I really, I mean, like, realistically, like, there's a... So, so this is the first thing that came to mind for me, and this, this might be a sign of how my brain works. It's not a great comparison at all. But it reminded me of people making the case for starting a rival um, professional wrestling outfit because WWE had a had a quasi monopoly and it was worth a billion bucks and it was like, well, you can't have a monopoly. Yeah. Um, and then they try and start a, a new wrestling league. The problem is that a lot of the dynamics in that industry kind of steer everyone towards the same place because mm-hmm. the the dominant player ends up absorbing a bunch of the talent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I, it, it, this is going to be fascinating. I think that there's been a real miss in terms of the public discussion of what we should be concerned about where social media companies are concerned. Right, we're going to talk where, about that. Yeah, yeah, so if conservatives are like, hey, censorship, it's like, oh, if you look at like the top you know, 10, 20, 100 accounts on Facebook, a lot of them are conservative. Conservative content does really well in these social media networks. Right. 
and so it doesn't seem like there's any kind of systematic stamping out of news sources from particular sides or whatnot. Actually, if anything, um, you know, there's a uh, stop uh, hate on Facebook campaign, which made the opposite argument where it said that Facebook was too easy hmm. on various conservative outlets. So I'm, I'm not sure that that is the issue, though I know that a lot of conservatives um, make that case. I think the more prevalent issues uh, are that the social media networks are just really bad for our mental health and it's just oppressing mm -hmm. the heck out of people. Uh, it's most clear with younger people, um, but it's true of everyone. Uh, you know, even Evelyn just the other day was, you know, off social media for a while and then went back on social media for a little bit to promote something and then came on and was like, man, like that, that, that was not exactly... <laughs> You know, like uh, it didn't really boost our spirits for the day. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so your point that like conservative content does well and has no problem getting a microphone, I think generally is true. My the bigger challenge, and I think we'll talk about this more in this episode, is is like narrative stuff. So I, I believe that there are very real yeah um, biases to be reckoned with. Uh, but I, I was making the case that if there are a couple things I'm most deeply concerned about where social media networks are concerned. It's less this. It's more mental Number health. one is uh, <laughs> the, the erosion and disintegration of our mental health. Number mm. two would be the complete fragmentation of information where at this point truth is whatever the heck my filter bubble says it is. So there are like 24 different truths. Yep. So we can't have a shared conversation. Right. It's the fact that our democracy is being subverted where you have foreign actors who are just ginning us up against each other uh, and using these tools to kind of expose this underbelly we have where we're not very um, together as a society, shall we say. Right. And, and so the splintering um, can have really negative, yeah, even disastrous effects. So those are some of the things that come to mind for me first. Uh, and that there are a handful of, uh, of voices that have run afoul of the standards of the social media companies strikes mm -hmm. me as an issue, to be sure. But when, when I talk to the folks at the social media companies about that issue, they look, look and say, look, we don't even want to be making these decisions. Yeah. It's just right now they're being forced into making these decisions because they've become the de facto public square and our government's nowhere to be found. Our, yeah. our government's essentially like, do what you want. Um, regulate you yourselves. Regulate yourselves. And then, oh, we're going to yell at you for whatever decision you make. And then the tech <laughs> companies are like, well, do you want to make this decision? And then the government's like, oh, we could never make that decision. you know. And so you're like, well, you know. We like, get hurt. Yeah, It's suffering. kind of a lose-lose because right. wherever they draw the line, someone's going to get mad. Right. Um, so that's, you know, that uh, back to the Trump's back. It's a fascinating business case. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of these social media networks genuinely do hew towards winner take all where, frankly, if there's like a place I go, like I'm on Twitter, a lot of everyone knows that, uh, you know, one of the benefits is that everyone else is on Twitter. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and so like if, if someone said, hey, Andrew, here's a new, new social media network and I'd go there no and I find it. out that, you know, 80% of the people that I know of are not there, then I'd be like, well, this is kind of mm -hmm. not very awesome. Not very, it's very hard to overcome that network effect as a new player, you would gen generally, if you were a company trying to do this, you would seed it with awesome people. Yes. You'd be like, come here and then all, all we'll of Pay these. you, whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and that is one of the things you're seeing in this space is that they are running around trying to pay certain influencers to seed some of these social media networks. And even then, it's a real uphill battle. It's right. a real slog. So a couple things from this deck and then we'll shift gears. So in this deck, they talked, and this is their, this is the um, Trump media um and technology groups 
survey, but one of the, the poll they showed was that a third of the country would use a Trump social media platform, one third. So and that's 54% of Republicans, 24% independents, and even 12% of Democrats. I'd argue if you're using the Trump social media pro- platform, you're probably not really a team Democrat, Democrat, I guess. Or maybe but, they're just to mess around. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Um, <laughs> um, so I, I would say like from a macro standpoint, yeah, this is actually interesting. The bigger one to me is, is less about, to your point on social media, like that's always hard. Um, and if it's just a right wing bubble, then I are you thinking the content? You thinking a new movie studio? And yeah, TV I think that the, the TMTG plus streaming content is interesting um, in the sense that, like, if you are not a liberal and you watch the Oscars, you're not loving it, right? You are feeling, and there's certain types of content that have become you're you're feeling either preached or feel like it's politicized. Um, and if you're f- super against it, you're hating it, and if you're moderate, you're seeing it, right? So there is a market for I think. Um, either more neutral or more more conservative leaning, like general what, what content. This makes but it'll come down execution. What so. this makes me think of is Christian content. It yeah, comes out and sometimes you have these hit movies, uh, uh, and albums and whatnot that aren't considered, uh, I suppose, mainstream. Even though some of them have vast audiences, that, that's what occurred to me. Good point. Though yeah. I'm not sure if the this uh, Trump world content is going to mirror Christian content. It is very. I, I was raised Christian and I'm a Christian, and it is very difficult for me to see anything Christ-like in what Donald Trump does, yeah, and that drives me that's absolutely bonkers. That the evangelical right is like Donald Trump's our guy. Are you kidding me? Like, come on. Anyway, that's not the point. We're not here to preach, but I agree. Um, and I think if you're a parent and you're watching the little Nas video of like you know him literally as the devil. Um, doing various things i i don't think there's a lot of parents like i don't want that for my my child right um for better or for worse and that's your opinion but there there is a market for it i think there's certainly i mean uh, it, it's going to be fascinating to see another thing this makes me think of is that i think they made a movie with gina carano as soon as disney canceled her uh this yeah was, that's right yeah so that they'll they'll take some canceled figures yeah. so wait wait let's make a list just for fun um so the the new programming would star Kevin Spacey, Gina Carano. <laughs> oh, Kevin Spacey's actually a, a pedophile, which I don't like. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, like no him, I'm, I mean, I'm, right. I'm, I'm, I'm just throwing it out there. It's like, which who, is a who, bummer because I loved Kevin Spacey. Who would be like the well. canceled greatest? Uh, Gal Gadot got kind of hammered. A Gal bit. Gadot is still um, very, very. She's mainstream. still doing things up. Yeah, um, Gal's gonna be Roseanne. Right. What's Roseanne would be there. Roseanne. Uh, Terry Crews. Terry Crews got canceled. Oh yeah, he's a Republican. <laughs> I think Terry Crews got canceled. Anyway, so t- t- it would uh, also Terry Crews would be there. Kelsey Grammer's there. Chappelle would be there. I guess Chappelle would totally Chappelle. not be there. You gotta be. You gotta be <laughs> fucking kidding me. Don't <laughs> be nowhere near this. You're right. That's the thing. Like a lot of these folks, like you have actual assholes who deserve to be canceled, and they would get you know mopped up here. And then you have people who are not assholes who have been quote unquote canceled or like gotten in hot water, and they wouldn't want to be associated with. The no, I, I mean, essentially, anyone who can just hop on to mainstream um, media offerings uh, will stay there. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the people that can't get um, that kind of booking will come here. So I, it was sort of fun for me to think about who those figures are. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. 
Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. Where they'll make their money is probably the content. Like if they can raise enough money, which it looks like they are, to produce shows and the shows are good, people watch them. Not everyone, but they don't have to. Like Donald Trump has a big enough audience where you get enough people to persuade some advertisers. And look, there's a reason OAN exists. There's a reason Newsmax exists. There are advertisers and a lot of people that watch that stuff. So if you're just pure business objective, I think, you know, I don't think this is going away. The point I have was earlier is like, it's going to be an execution thing. And I don't think that Donald has proven great execution on a lot of businesses that he is running. It depends. Uh, but he I, slaps his name on the hotels. I, and I'm going to good. suggest that I, I think that you can make an ideological cable news offering and make it a more viable business uh, more easily than you could trying to produce genuine scripted content. Mm. Because if you think about conservative talk radio, very low cost, uh, you can get an yeah. audience. Uh, even some of these upstart new cable news offerings, pretty low cost. You get a studio Nothing, yeah. uh, pretty much like as long as you get like the uh, the distribution channel, then you're off to the races. Um, but if you have scripted content, I mean, that stuff gets expensive. It's very hard to do well. Um, high pe- risk. People have yeah. very high standards for it. It's mm-hmm. very high risk. And so if you look at even major Hollywood movies or TV shows or whatnot, uh, well, you know, we're in a funny time because now who knows what's profitable. But uh, but a lot of them have a hard time turning a profit and they have, let's say, 80% of the sandbox to play in yeah. or something like Good that. Point. Um, so if if you start out with 15% of the sandbox and say, hey, make some movies, make some TV shows, like I think you're fucked personally, <laughs> as, as you can tell. So, th- so that, that that's Andrew's take on it. My take would be, I like the concept of talking to a broader part of the country. I don't like the concept of in talking to them, you're making Donald Trump more rich. Well, I think that you can, again, you can build on those existing business models. Like, like could they start a fledgling cable channel? I'd believe it. Yeah. You know, could they start, um, well, social media is tough because on, on that one, um, you know, I mean, that stuff is advertising driven. So mm-hmm. they're having a smaller sandbox will, again, really hurt you. Um, yeah, as you can tell, I'm dubious about their ability to get into some of these traditional um, 
businesses successfully. One downside, and probably should talk about this, is that if it, let's say he wins presidency in 2024, which is something we've talked about, this becomes like an authoritarian mouthpiece of bullshit, um, which feels a little scary. That would be very bizarre, <laughs> where the, the president's like, I only talk on to channel Trump. Yeah. Yeah. And then everyone would be like, on channel Trump today, Trump said this, and then he's making money off it. You know, one thing that does irk me is that, you know, like we we do things. I mean, I've run campaigns, I've started organizations and whatnot, and we always have these like massive compliance teams being like, oh, you know, got to do this right, mm-hmm. got to do that right. And mm-hmm. then when it comes to Trump and the gang, they're like, it seems like, yeah, like no, no rules at all. And everyone's like, he's breaking the rules. And then they're like, no one's know. enforcing them. They're not really rules then. Yeah, like. which does bring us to, I think, one of the things that has fed Trump this entire time there's something i talk about in my book uh and i, I had to come up with a name for it so that i love this name although i forget it a lot uh, so the, the so the name <laughs> of this idea is uh, is constructive institutionalism which i actually made purposefully benign because i wanted someone to be able to use it with someone else without seeming like they're insulting you Ooh, yeah 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 and also the people that are guilty of constructive institutionalism would totally use the phrase constructive institutionalism that's what i was going for <laughs> So what the heck am I talking about? And I think that this is something that really feeds uh, the rise of Trump and mm-hmm. people that think that all the you know media are, are bullshit and that all these institutions are bullshit. Uh, and so that this was something I had to kind of dig deep on. And it, it was born in part of a comment from Eric Weinstein a little while ago where he said that this economy is making liars of us all. And then you asked him, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you have these institutions that pretend that they're going to give the academics tenure, that they're going to make the new lawyers partners eventually. And then later they have to come back and be like, yeah, turns out those positions don't exist. JK. <laughs> yeah. And now you're in, you know, this permanent purgatory as an adjunct or you're a lawyer forever who will never make partner. And, and so you have all of these assumptions around growth that if they don't, hold true, then you're you're having to lie to a lot of people in various ways. Uh, and I thought that he was right. Uh, and I realized that it's happening around us all the time. And it also built into some of my own experiences where I would do countless interviews or sit on a panel. And then I get asked a question that kind of presupposes that it's going to work out. So here's a here's one that you all will have heard a million times. How are we going to ensure that growth is equitable and includes people of different backgrounds? And then I process that. And then the way I answer on a panel is like, well, we have to really you know, work hard to uh, find the people that right now are being left behind and make sure they have access to this. It's, and if you can see, like the real answer is we will not. You know, if someone there says, like, how are we going to retrain millions of Americans for the jobs of the future? The answer is we, we will won't. not. How are we going to overcome polarization? Almost certainly will not. How are we going to, you know, like all of these big problems, but the way it's framed to you, it's kind of a, a solvable dick move. problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one, it, it, it's presented to you as a solvable problem. And then you virtue signal by saying like, well, we got to dig deep and make sure that people that aren't getting mm-hmm. uh, to the table right now get there. And then we all go home and no one actually is going to go and try and find the person who's not at the table and bring them to the table. So I've been a part of these gatherings all of the time and we do just kind of bullshit each other the kabuki or the pantomime becomes the deliverable where it's like as long as i showed up to the session and said the right things and made the right 
uh, value statements, then everyone's like, okay, uh, we're working on it. And then everyone goes home and thinks uh, about, and I, I've obviously been a part of this. So, you know, yeah. to the extent that there's like a, any um, responsibility or, or complicity or whatnot, I mean, certainly I'd raise my hand and say, yeah, like I, I've done this shit like, I'll raise my countless hand. times. This, this was UBS. So I would bring, we have billionaires in the room. I would invite you and a bunch of other social entrepreneurs Thanks for the invite. to come on the panel. And the goal is to raise money, make connections to help your org because you're doing great work. And the panel goes like this, Andrew, you've done something, something incredible. Tell me about how your program works. And you just kind of do the pitch of why VFA is awesome. Tell a couple fun stories, charm the crowd. But at no point would it be appropriate for me to be like, yeah, your program's not really working. What are the actual core problems with it? And why can't we fix it You know, at, at a fundamental level? I would never ask that because one, you're doing me a favor and the organization a favor by coming. Um, and two, then we all kind of look bad. And so there's like, your point is just this like nonsense not talking about the elephant in the room, which is philanthropy's broken. The people in the room that can do something about it either don't know or don't care or can do nothing. That's why one of the three. Or the scale is wrong. And that's one of the yeah. things that drove me is that if you look at the largest nonprofit in the country, I think its entire budget is in the hundreds of millions, something along those lines. Yeah. If you're excluding like big hospitals, I guess. Yeah, I, I'd have to look at that. I mean, I guess if you had hospitals, you'd probably find somewhere yeah, with like a universities billion dollars. Maybe <laughs> oh, universities. Budget. Don't get me started. I yeah. mean, there'd be like 20 universities with billion dollar endowments for yeah. sure. Um, but if you look at annual budgets of operating nonprofits, uh, I think the highest budgets are in the, let's say, hundreds of millions. And mm -hmm. then if you look at the scale of the economy, it's 22 trillion. Uh, and so if Peanut. You, yeah, so if you have, uh, and so it, you know, and I ran an organization that was, um, in the like the low millions, um, but like our ability to effectuate real change at the right scale uh, would be close to zero. Yeah, and <laughs> and so and you were doing great work like, as someone who had to find the people doing good work. I mean, it's I can count on on two hands maybe of like really innovative new work. Um, not that's not a knock on people who are doing you know, wonderful saint-like work. But in terms of new, innovative, pushing the envelope, there weren't a lot of people doing it. Even you were like, yeah, scales off. Well, and so people uh, at home, Zach also started a nonprofit. Uh, yep. It's extraordinarily wholesome called, called Suit Up. Suit Up, Volunteer Suit Up. I'll plug it. If you guys are looking for a better volunteer day, we do a really good job. Um, and we'll be a million-dollar organization by the end of the year, which is crazy, dude. Started out with like 200 bucks. So what, so what Suit Up does is it pairs struggling school kids with professional mentorship opportunities where they, they get presentations from people who are in professional environments to try and get their heads up to yeah. the fact that there are real opportunities out there if they stay in school and try and do good work. And you structure it like they're, instead of your park cleanup or soup kitchen, you do a one-day volunteer day where like it's in, a company like signs up for this and pays for it, and then the kids get real-world you know, mentorship and access and the company gets a better way to volunteer. However, same problem, like scale, both there's either too many students. Um, yeah, like when, when we were doing them in person, we couldn't, you know, too many schools to work with. And two, companies have like this much budget, like a small sliver of their budget is meant for employee engagement, um, which is not a ton of money. It's usually 10% of their overall philanthropic budget and their philanthropic budget, of course, is uh, also small. So you're not talking about a large. So. Zach and I have each started, it, it sounds like uh, what will either be soon or are million dollar nonprofits, multi-million nonprofits. And, and both of us realized that we needed to go bigger to try and solve the fundamental problems that are getting hairier and more far reaching and more serious all the time. So constructive institutionalism 
is when leaders sit down and act like everything is going to work out, even though by the numbers, there's no reason to think that it will work out. <laughs> and they make you feel good. And they pro- make you feel good. <laughs> and so that Wow, he was so inspiring. Yeah, we're not doing shit. <laughs> but yeah. I feel good. And every organization's interests are toward constructive institutionalism because, you know, it's, it'll just make you feel better. Uh, and government is so guilty of this all the time. I, was, I said to a, a group of business leaders the other day, I was like, look, you've all been named to these government honorary advisory boards and whatnot. And we know you do not do shit. You get together, you take a photo op. It looks like everyone's on board and you go home and you do nothing. Mm -hmm. And really savvy business leaders, you know, sometimes do it just so that that it seems. And you get to hang out with other business leaders. Yeah, there's networking and selfish gain. But but in terms of actually like, you know, moving shit, it's like very, very seldom um, do do these things uh, actually have uh, real impact or deliverables. Even some of like the major commitments when you go to some of these conferences, they'll say it's like, look, just commit the thing you were going to do anyway. Mm. Uh, and, and that and there's very little in the way of follow up. None, right? Like None. It, it's almost never like, hey, like did he do the thing? Did that he, do he that? said no. he was going to do dump. the thing? Uh, I think people sense this. So th- there's a lot of bullshit going on, really. And then so when someone runs around, let's call him Donald Trump, and calls bullshit. There are a lot of people that are like, oh, yeah, it is bullshit. Like, why is college going up in price every fucking year? Like, mm-hmm. why is my health care <laughs> going up in cost every year? And it's like, you know, like, like they're, they're real freaking problems. And then if you get people from the institutions in there, like, no one's like, oh, yeah, like, we're, we're really shafting the hell out of people. We've been we're doing it at scale, you know, yeah. like, like there. And, and so there's this real fervor around trying to change things. And it's getting channeled in very, very. Uh, destructive and unconstructive ways, in part because the people who man or staff or run these institutions can't do anything about these deep problems because none of their incentives are in standing up and saying, yeah, you know, that that this is actually fundamental. Uh, it's more like, oh, we're working on this thing. Check it out. We've got this initiative. And, you know, we're, we're spending whatever, like half of 1% of our mm-hmm. company's budget on it. And we're going to have an event around it. And then we'll get some people to say nice things. So that that's the nature of the problem uh, that I defined as constructive institutionalism in my book. And I got to say, that chapter... I wrote that in like the middle of the night where I was like having dark Just thoughts yeah. and, I, I, and then I woke up the next morning being like, I, I'm going to read what I wrote and see if it, it's like, you know, uh, acceptable. And I, it ended up being one of my favorite. It's your passages. best chapter. I would argue that's a chapter that why definitely for me and probably you too, why you ran for president, why I joined you, why I just clicked. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. 
Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So when I started suit up, I was part time at, at UBS, but I um, or sorry, I was full time at UBS. So I was part time running this organization, and the number one thing people said to me was, uh, and it was really humbling at first. They're like, "Oh, that's so impressive! Like, how do you find the time to do that?" And my gut reaction to that was like, "What the fuck are you talking about? These kids are screwed! Like, they they have nothing! Like, why are, why are we doing nothing? Like, stop brunching on the weekends and maybe help out a little bit." And it was. And that's literally how I found time. Was like, like you skip the didn't brunch. drink as much on Saturday at yeah. eleven a.m. and and look, that is fun. I do like a good brunch. Who doesn't? Um, but that was what was driving me nuts. Um, and we have a very, it's it's not as simple as like the the one percent elitists. It's I mean it's it's bigger than that. It's like our corporate culture where people are working in the the we're all market actors. Right. We're all market actors, and we're just we talk about this stuff. We feel good. We go to the gala. We pay our thing. We go to the open bar. But we just don't give a shit. Um, or what I called it was light commitment benevolence. Mm. Like I'll do enough so that I can feel good, but I'm not really I'm better than to, the average. But I'm, I'm not. But I'm not going to like make a meaningful yeah. uh, sacrifice. I'm not going to like bet the rent. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I'll I'll do something where I can show up to your thing and um, and have a couple of drinks. Let me ask you this. Um, so I was just on uh, Adam Carolla's podcast called Taking the. Um, which Andrew's going on soon. He's going on the main one. I got I got like the JV one. I think it's behind the paywall, but it was fun. Adam's like an interesting, interesting character, um, but a good guy. He was, he was nice to me, and I was grateful to be on there. But one of the things he said in this was that, um, I'm curious your thoughts. He said, so I was talking about my mom was a teacher and my dad went into business as an engineer, and, and he said, don't overhype the saint move because those who do go into business and create thousands of jobs and play th- millions in taxes or whatever, that sort of thing, there is a lot of good, arguably a lot more good done by contributing to the economy at that scale. And I, I, I heard him say that and I thought like on one hand, there's a lot of truth to that, like building things does add a ton of value, but I didn't think it was fundamentally true. And I feel like you're smarter than me to understand why I was kind of like, hmm, on that. Like thoughts on that pushback on Instead of maybe building the schools, it's better to create a whole bunch of jobs and that the rising tide will lift all boats. Wow. Because I, I literally wrote a book called Smart People Should Build Things, yeah. uh, trying to lionize folks who actually go out and, and do yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like create jobs. Because he was like, that person who creates jobs is vilified more today. I don't know. Somewhat. He's not wrong about yeah. that. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, like we, we certainly are down on uh, business people. It's very uh, hard to start in, stuff. In yeah. a way. Yeah. I mean, I admire people who start a business at any level, Agreed. you know, Agreed. lemonade stand, it's hard. diner, it's freaking whatever hard. it is. It, it's super hard. Uh, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to hold up folks who work in jobs that serve the public good. The mm-hmm. jobs that come to mind for me are like teachers or firefighters. Yeah, uh, agreed. You know, uh, or um, nurses or, or people that you know that you're probably a caring individual if you're there ministering to, to folks or teaching our kids yeah. or whatnot. And we should pay him. It should be a living, healthy wage. We, right? should, like, we should be paying a lot of these. They shouldn't be worried more. too much about money, right? Yeah. Um, I admit, I have a feeling, and this is one of the themes of my campaign, is like, you know, do you want me to say nice shit about you or do you want me to give you money? And everyone would be like, give me the give money. Give me money, please. Like, yeah. Rather be an asshole, but give me money. Right? Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Because everybody's it, kind of an asshole at some point, right? 
And that is perfect. one of the diseases. Is like we, we just get pressured into the virtue signal of being like, oh, you know, like essential. Like, thank you. It's like the, the workers don't care what the fuck you call them if you just give them some more money. And like that would be preferable than like having us all be like, you're essential or, you know, thank yes. you. It's like, you know, I can thank you by being, being willing to pay more so that you can bring some more yes. home to your family. You've talked about this before. Is like when you're an employer, when you have – uh, an employee you want to take care of them. you can do a couple of things you can tell them good job uh you can promote them or you can pay them more money and those are like your three options i think i'm doing it right oh, you and forgot, almost always you they want more number money. one really is do nothing oh do nothing <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, the, but the one that will like the other things can work temporarily but the only thing that works long term is more money all right, that's a good segue, Andrew. Wait, wait, wait. I'm going to put the forward party hat on because we're going to put the thinking cap on and we're going to talk about we're going to talk about the thing that so many people talk about, which is what is going on with our news media <laughs> and why do people feel like they have no idea where to go to get information they can trust? Oh, uh, that's a good segue because uh, both the Trump's media company and constructive institutionalism all kind of play into all of the problems with our media. First, though, plug for the forward merch. You're looking pretty good, man. And that well, hat's actually you. pretty cool. Well, um, thank you. I, I feel very uh, heroic and patriotic. There it is. It's like a good feeling, you know what I mean? You look kind of heroic. I like it. Oh, thank you. I um, a Captain America vibe going. There you go. All right. I did watch uh, a Flying Back from LA. I watched The Last Adventures again. Uh, and I always cry at the end uh, because Robert Downey Jr. and Spider-Man, Iron Man Spider-Man always gets me. That's not the point. What the hell's wrong with the media? We both made lists. You, let's you go first because we know anyone listening to this knows they're going to be smarter than whatever the hell I come up with. Well, the, the major problem with the news media right now is the commercial incentives where yeah. if you try and present something in an even-handed, objective way, it's uh, less enticing and people reward you uh, less by coming to you. Mm. And so the more kind of red meat you throw someone's way, the more excited they get uh if you push the envelope a bit if you're a little more sensationalist if you're a bit more ideological there was an msnbc producer ariana bakari who said that if they had a peaceful protest and a protest with some flames or violence they would just show the flames and violence over and over again obviously and and then they would cut away from anything peaceful because they were like well this is some boring programming Mm -hmm. so you can see that incentive playing out in pretty much every media organization you can name car crash right yeah, and and uh, the the when you think about the the news media, in my opinion, right now, you think about cable news because they're so dominant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I was running for president, they felt like the only game in town very very often because if you go on a news program of another network, let's call it ABC or whatnot. You're not going to go back on that network for weeks, maybe mm-hmm. months, because mm-hmm. they can't just keep talking to you. Mm-hmm. But cable news, you could go on, you know, different shows uh, five, six times in a given week, yep. and so it, it feels like they're they're the only game in town, uh, and they are definitely very um, ideological uh, in in bent. Uh, certainly, Fox and MSNBC, you can just look at the numbers and and, and see, uh, and that's, I think, problem number one is just that you get rewarded for being a little bit more aggressive, uh, sensationalist and ideological. And if that's the way your organization gets rewarded, that's where you're going to go. And it it kind of tracks the human nature now. Like we like the excitement piece or if you're going to take time out of your day to read something, it's 
and more instinctive that you'll find the thing we've all with, definitely like, the shiny object. to it you know what i mean yeah like and so i'm going to to take the next ingredient which is social media mm -hmm. uh and studies have shown that negative sentiment and falsehood spread six times more quickly and powerfully on social media than truth <laughs> yeah <laughs> so if you're an organization that again pushes the envelope you're more likely to get clicks and traffic and any content producer will tell you i'm I, you know i produced content you know what you do after you produce content wait to see how many people look at it you right. know you produce a video it's like oh how many people watch that video mm -hmm. how many people are going to listen to this podcast mm -hmm. uh, and so over time you start thinking oh if i get a little bit zanier like a little bit more if aggressive I title it this way you're yeah. just all just pandering to the youtube algorithm or whatever <laughs> a matter of fact zach we should trash someone right now just to get get some numbers Ooh, yeah who you want trash uh that fucking guy. Tom Brady, screw you. Oh, wow. We can both pile on Tom Brady. Good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Good choice. Like Good choice. Touchdown passes um, on Sunday. Uh, so, yeah. my, so my list goes number one, commercial incentives, and then number two, social media incentives that also are commercial but are a little bit more personal and human. Mm -hmm. I had um, that it's factual but not accurate. It, well, that always bothered me. So we talk about this when people say uh, – numerous sources or many people had said but it's also this one that i love where a fringe outlet or small young quote-unquote journalist writes a clickbait piece um for let's call it business insider or the verge or one of these like smaller uh outlets and then washington post new york times or cable news can pay can be accusations have been made of blank right so not like they're not saying that the story's true, but it is true that an accusation was made, even if that accusation was fundamentally false. And I don't think people realize the layers of, like how far, it's like it's almost like telephone, like how far away you get from the truth. Um, media reporting on other media is certainly on this list of yeah. major problems because there's a desire not to get scooped. And so yes. if someone else reports something, then you're like, oh, we're we going to pile on this thing? And the answer often now tends to be yes. Even if, as you're describing, Zach, you're like, well, all I'm going to do is represent re to you this reporting that may or may not be true. Right. But I'm just going to present it to you. And you can't attack me because, you know, it happened. You know, the, yeah. the, the other article happened. Um, even though we have no idea whether it, it's bullshit or not. And we have, have had, had no contact with any primary source and we have nothing to add yeah but we're just going to report on the reporting there's like a, a lot of this meta stuff um and, and it feeds into this news cycle of the day feeding frenzy that something kind of flimsy can get put out there particularly if again it's kind of negative and, and sensationalist yeah. and everyone will be like oh well we can't just ignore it like right. we have to let our readers know that this is happening mm-hmm Oh, you'll get the, my favorite from the reporters is, I'm going live with the story whether you like it or not. And I'm like, well, I have 10 people on record that will say the exact opposite who are better, closer to the source or X, Y, Z. And like, I'm going live with the story regardless. Do you have a comment? Can my comment be, I have 10 people close to the source that'll say the exact opposite? No, I'm not including that quote. Oh, then I don't know what to tell you. Like that is like, those are very real conversations I've had multiple times. Um, now we get, you know, you, it was, you know, the context there is you're getting shivved for God knows what, um, um, for having building built things, I guess, in your past. Um, there's a, there is a journalistic code, like it exists where they don't reveal their sources and they, they do fact check, but the fact check can be someone else said something, another media outlet quoted this. So that's enough of a source for me. So that is one of my biggest, um, 
concept of fact issues I have with the media. Um, well, so what, what you just suggested, Zach, is a dynamic that probably should be on the list. So journalists have sources and relationships. And one of the things that political operatives do in particular is just try and feed a story to a friendly journalist. And mm -hmm. the journalist can either take it or not take it. Right. Uh, and so this happened certainly uh, in the mayoral campaign all the time where if you had five uh, other candidates, like their entire day was spent trying to source negative stories about oh yeah about other candidates in that case it was often me because i was the most conspicuous uh, <laughs> candidate at that time so if you're a journalist you're like huh okay you're trying to have me print something is it true well yeah i can defend it journalistically that's am what I, it is i can a, defend a, it it's like, defensible not truth yeah a, am i uh going to preserve my relationship with you by uh, helping you out with this story and thus maybe get something from you later that will help me do my job? Yes. Mm -hmm. So let me... So, okay, defensible kind of helps me. Maybe I've known you for a while. Yeah, let's do it. We'll <laughs> and, yeah. then, and then you can... And then that ends up producing things that you know, objectively you're like, wait, why is that news? Or why is that newsworthy? Or like, doesn't that seem incomplete? Right. Uh, and th that's uh, a very real thing. That's one reason why you hire people whose job it is to have relationships with reporters so they can work them. Okay, if you're a candidate, you're running a campaign, which by definition is a temporary organization, right? So it doesn't exist after the election or after a couple elections, depending on you, right? Um, so therefore, these entire infrastructures are just being created and dying, right? And so the so what is the political institution that exists? It's the media, right? And then it's consultants who become basically experts in various aspects of politics. So you'll have a pollster that's an expert in polling, and you'll have a press consultant who has a bunch of relationships with a lot of supporters, and you'll have a TV ads person, you'll have a digital media firm and an email expert, and all these folks, and they plug into candidates as they pop up and the candidates hire them, these sort of things. And they have professional relationships with the media. So they are friends. The, but the, the other, the thing that cuts the other way is that those reporters are not friends with the campaign. Like they're not, they're never your friend. They'll shiv you at any point. If they ever pretend to be your friend, they are not. Um, so it's, it cuts the wrong way where you have, you may be saying that's not true, but you're XYZ consultant and your team may be like, well, it may not be true, but we can't bash this reporter because... I need them down the road or I need them for my other clients or God knows what. And so you end up in this very precarious or confusing situation, I think, where the incentives for you as a candidate and the incentives for your consultants or experts or institutional, you know, political. Well, they're, they're repeat the players. They, they, you know, yeah. they got to think about the next client, the next right. job. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I made the same comparison in the political side with political consultants. It's like they're NFL coaches who would rather lose professionally than have uh, anything mm. high variance occur. Right. So that's why it seems like everyone's the same. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You'd rather like go four and 12 or whatever, four and 13, I guess, not a 17 game, then uh, shoot for the shoot for the win, but but flame out. Right. Um because no one wants, no consultant wants to be like, oh, you worked on that campaign? That was a disaster, They'd right? much rather a boring much rather be like, oh, yeah, you worked on... It, and, that, and that's related to the media stuff, you're right. Because right. like the media and the handlers and the consultants all have 
uh, a long-term relationship. Though I will say that what you're describing is an issue with specifically political media, but that's cool because a lot of people listening to this will be like, oh, you know. Yeah, that's a political thing. Um, not so much in business media at all. You actually want to be friends with the, with the CEOs and that sort of startup founders if you're a politi- if you're a business reporter, right? Yeah, I enjoy business journalists for this reason. Business journalists have, have kind of uh, <laughs> you know more positive incentives. Um, one other issue I think is wrong with our news today is just there's too much freaking time. You know what I mean? Like when I was growing up, you had the evening news. It's like 30 minutes. Your local news, 30 minutes. Now you have to fill what? I guess 24 hours. Yeah. Uh, of programming. And weekends. And so if you gave me 24 hours to talk about the news in a given day, I would make no sense by hour number five. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is one reason, again, why you have like reporting on reporting and you have like a, a, like the dynamics you do because mm-hmm. you just have so much time to fill. As a product of the medium, you have to have these punchy five or six minute segments with like visuals and uh, people coming in and out. I mean, uh, everyone knows. I think I was a contributor to CNN for a while, and like I, I was like an, a like a positive ingredient to add to the mix. It's like <laughs> if you had a show, you would just be like, "Hey, let's get Yang on. He can like talk intelligently about what's going on in Capitol Hill and policy for like six minutes." Uh, and uh, you know, I did my best to do that and you know, <laughs> like add value and say things that I thought were. Um, right. you know, uh, we're, we're going to be a positive contribution. Um, but you just have so much time to fill that you wind up, I think, uh, having to make certain types of decisions um, because you have to keep it somewhat interesting. You have to talk about things like they're important, um, you know, that are happening on a daily basis. One of the big things that I was trying to make the case for on my presidential campaign, which I think this case really needs to be made, is that you have all these deep-seated problems where we're, you know, 28th in the world and in infant mortality mm-hmm. or clean drinking water or things. But that there's nothing new. It's like there's no like news peg to that where it's like, yeah, we still suck. We suck. You know, <laughs> suck again. You know, it's like so like so like they're like the news pegs are all like stock markets up or like this person like is an asshole. And then like right. and then so we're just running. I, I feel like we're just getting distracted and like just um getting uh like these shiny objects like shown to us on any given day while like the the earth is turning into quicksand mm-hmm. and then more and more people are getting sucked into the quicksand and you're seeing different like cries for help and the news media is just like like what's wrong with you <laughs> like well, why are you not like you know like why do you not like what what we're saying mm-hmm. uh and so that that would be Problem number, I don't know what, where we are on the list now, maybe four, is that there's just like too much time for the news. Uh, you could throw in number five, that there is a visual medium and a format. Mm-hmm. Um, there is part of me that, frankly, is somewhat flattered that I was considered TV worthy, <laughs> I, I guess. You know, there are a lot of people out there that are awesome that probably aren't just aren't great for like, you know, like frankly, yeah. like a, like a commercial news medium. I got the face for radio or whatever. They- <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And, like, and so it, there's like something um, so skewed about the medium. Um, and then my problem number six, which is tied to some of these things is there's this sort of imperious authoritative condescending view that the media naturally takes, which I've summarized as, get a load of this guy or get a load of this person. 
Uh, and so there is this continue, <laughs> continuous. I don't. I, the word that came to mind for me is like shaming, but there's mm-hmm. like a, there's just a lot of shaming going on. And, and so if you're an average person looking up at this, you're like over time you just begin to be like, hey, you know, maybe I'm I'm not. I, maybe I'm more like the person you're shaming than I am mm. you, <laughs> like whoever you are mm-hmm. behind the camera. And this reminds me of Sarah Palin back in back in 08 was like the media elite, the media establishment and the rest of it. And I, I heard it at the time. And, I, you know, frankly, I thought Sarah Palin was, um, you know, not, not yeah, so. like not very um, worth heeding, shall we say. <laughs> but but, but, but there, there is like a very real tone and approach and condescension. Mm. Uh, and what what's interesting, you and I haven't spoken about this before. Maybe we have a little bit. So another theme of my book is that running for office kind of like puts you through a particular kind of crucible yeah. and it challenges your perspective and mental health in a particular way. You know yes, what really, really challenges your perspective and mental health? Being on live television <laughs> five days a week mm-hmm. for hours on end. Like that stuff can really mess with your head. Mm-hmm. Now, I know some of these people, obviously, some of them are just as sane as the day is long. Some yeah. of them are just, you know, like Anderson Cooper is just a really sane dude. Yeah. He can be on TV. <laughs> like yeah. over and I over like again. Dana Bash a lot. Um, yeah. yeah. So, some of the people are just really very, sane, yeah. very sane and it doesn't get to them. But other people, you can tell it's messed with them. Uh, and a lot of them too, like you get in that chair, they, you know, frankly, throw makeup on you. Like a, a lot of the people too, like you, you know, you kind of have to be sort of like fixed in time. Like you're in, you have to be all perky. You have to be like a certain an, level of perky to be on camera. And just, you know? and just going back on it over and over again, it, it does take something out of you. It takes a certain sort of exertion and it messes with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and that there is a distortion that occurs with the news media that when you say like, quote unquote, like the media elites, like that, like there is something there and it's not necessarily anyone's fault you know, because, you know, again, I know some of these people, but does that dynamic exist that where they'll right. be caring about things that the average person does not care about? They'll be making a big deal out of things that like, you know, a lot of people don't care about a hundred percent. Yeah. It's become a commodity now and with the advent of smartphones, frankly, and social media in that in commodity in the sense that anybody can create news and content pretty easily. Um, Case in point. Yes. This, you know, forward. Um, and, <laughs> Andrew what, and, Zach. and what's your differentiator then? It's like we had at UBS. It was the two things that helped our UBS, like money management. Anyone can manage your money. Right. Um but what was what kept UBS afloat was trust, whether it was FDIC insured or the scale or a lot of people use them. And then regulation, which can be a moat, like the government involvement can be a moat around keeping a business alive. And I think the connection between media and our, like mainstream media and our government is what keeps them powerful and trustworthy and um, and thriving in some ways or th- thriving enough. So this is my example in um, you don't. I know you don't fully agree, but uh, my example is Catherine Garcia in the New York City mayor's race. Sure. So Catherine Garcia polling at these are just facts. Polling at essentially zero, low single digits, um, no social media following, no name ID, never been an elected official before. She's a government city government operator, um, sanitation head. Not a particularly compelling public speaker or debater. 
Um, and that's not my opinion. That is like New York Times is pretty harsh on her and her debating skills and, and other outlets. There were no unique marketing tactics or anything out of the box or out of the ordinary from the Catherine Garcia campaign and had not raised a ton of money. There was nothing particularly exceptional about Catherine Garcia, except one thing. She was endorsed by the New York Times and she went from low single digits to the high 25, 30% contending with Eric Adams for the W, extending with you, extending with everybody, and almost won. And that's the only thing. So my point is there's still a power there where if New York Times says, like, you're the guy, you're the gal, and you could go from literally an uninspiring campaign. And I and we like her as a human, um, I believe, and you know her better than I do. Yeah, um, I like Catherine. But she went from literally like a non-factor in the race at some point with the blessing to a can major contender. Um do you think the media should have that play? I know their role is theoretically to help educate the populace on what's, um, you know, who who they who you should vote for. But I don't know with today's information, I don't know if that's needed as much. What do you think there? I personally appreciated that they decided to get behind Catherine as opposed to some of the other candidates. No, but, but but to your point, sixty nine percent of Democrats have a high trust in media. No. Independents, it's thirty six percent. Republicans, it's only fifteen percent. You have this still establishment heating body of democratic voters who want to hear from the news media who they should support who's been blessed mm -hmm. uh, and that's the dynamic the problem is right now it's essentially an uh, a one-sided asymmetrical dynamic where it's mainly true on the democratic side mm -hmm. republican side does not care okay yeah. and then there's like an increasing body of people in the middle which i'm going to throw myself in this body where we're starting to become increasingly concerned about what's going on uh, in terms of the establishment and the news media's ability to present something that's objective um, as opposed to being politically motivated. I mean, that's where I think most Americans are at this point is like, hey, like, who do I trust? Like, you know, is there a fix in mm -hmm. for a particular group of candidates? And we certainly saw on the Democratic side, they tried to shiv Bernie at every turn in 16 and they really successfully sandbagged him. Mm -hmm. um, you saw a kind of a repeat of that in 2020 to some extent. Yeah. Um, you had different candidates having different types of treatment, myself included. Uh, and like mm -hmm. Amer and Americans look at this and we're like, you know what? Like I get the sense that there are some people trying to put their thumb on the scale. Uh, and then the Republican side, you know, it's like uh, all heck is breaking loose. And, and you know, Trump mm -hmm. kind of overrode a lot of what people imagined as institutional safeguards. And now the institutions have uh, decided that Trump is um, the path uh, until further notice. So there, the issues are asymmetrical. When you ask, like, does the news media have a rightful role in this? They are taking on this role 100%. They, they, may, they may or may not acknowledge it all the time, but they are 100% in the tank for one candidate or another, mm -hmm. and then they're just going to push, push, push. Uh, I almost appreciate it more when they actually come out and say, like, hey, we're in the tank for this candidate. I like that, too, because uh, they're, they're for-profit companies. So, you know, just be honest. But that there is <laughs> stuff going on behind the scenes all the time yeah. that I now realize where, the, you know, you have – very, very senior powers that be at these organizations saying, okay, here's who we're going to elevate. Here's who we're going to ignore. You know, again, for us personally, Ariana Picari, the MSNBC producer, said that she was instructed um, not to interview a number of candidates, including me, yeah. in, in 2019. And she was like, no reason given. Just here are some candidates. Don't right. talk to them. So so these things are going on in, news, in, in these news media organizations. And it's one reason why people are starting to check out or mistrust. We complained a lot on this podcast. Um, I like to be a podcast of action. Thoughts on how to s start solving for this is obviously a huge issue. I think, you know, I'll quickly say that I think 
you know, we are the right answer, but like content like our podcast is a step one, I think. Well, uh, so here's the main premise that I want to operate on that I think people are going to recognize. People have lost trust in institutions, but you know who we trust? Other people. people yeah. Like anyone listening to this has identified, I think, at least like a few independent voices or journalists were like, okay, like they're straight shooters. I'll mm-hmm. believe them. I might be one of them, and I thank you for it. If you decided that you trust me, thank you. I'll do everything I can to live up to that. Maybe you trust Crystal. Maybe you trust Sager. Maybe you trust Sam Harris. Maybe you trust... I love Peter Hamby. He's my favorite. Peter Hamby. I like Peter too. Oh, and uh, Tim Alberto we had on. We should get him back on. I love yeah, that. so the, the, you, you've identified some journalists that you like. Maybe Brittany even, Johnson. Maybe yeah. you even subscribe to their Substack. Or Brittany Shepard, not Brittany Johnson. That's from Sorry, Brittany Shepard. Yeah, maybe yeah. you even subscribe <laughs> to their Substack. So here's what is missing in American life and what I actually am going to try and provide, not me individually, but, you know, like well, um, I, I want to build this thing, is that we need to build a constellation of individuals that you trust that can deliver you news and information uh, in a way that is comparable to the way it's happening from the traditional news media on the left or the right. It's like this independent mm. provider of news that you can trust that will say very clearly, you know, uh, if there's like a relationship or a bias or we get something wrong, um, it'd be human. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like people trust people. And so if we can get enough of those people together, and I want to be one of them, uh, then we can try and solve this problem. And this can help build a solution to what's going wrong in our politics and our society is if people get some information that they believe in, that's objective, that doesn't succumb to some of these either market-based or institutional biases, then we have a chance to bring everyone back from the, from the brink. Mm-hmm. I hope people are excited about this. So the forward party is the political movement and then we're going to have a media movement too this podcast is going to be part of it and there's going to be much much more to come but these are the two projects i think are imperative for our country to uh, make it through this hyper polarized time mm-hmm. in a way it's like a search for truth provision of truth uh, and try to make a case that look there is some objective reality that's not subject to my politics or ideology. Dare I say it, Donald Trump has inspired us again. <laughs> we were thinking of a media come before he did his, but um, but yeah, I, I mean, he inspired you to run for president, and now he's inspiring you to we, find we were, a middle we ground were, media. We, I, I, I knew we needed, I knew we needed <laughs> admit, this. Yeah, both, yeah. I, I knew we needed this I'm at sorry. some point when, like, actually a friend said to me, I have no idea where to go to, to get my news anymore. That's common. A lot of people say a that. A lot of yeah. people say that. And when I heard that, I, I thought to myself, he's right. We need to provide that. Yeah. So let's provide that. More to come. I hope you all are excited about that. Yeah. Hopefully we can solve some of the problems in the news media that me and Zach just talked about. Amen. Um, okay, this weekend's Halloween. I hope you guys enjoy your Halloween. Andrew, it's your wife's and your son's birthday. What's the plan, man? And what are you, you going to be for Halloween? You're just going to be Andrew Yang? I could dress as myself. I actually saw a guy yesterday who said he's going to dress up as me. Did and his wife's going to dress up as Evelyn. It's very cute. Wait. Yeah, That's approved, by the way. Approved Halloween costume. It's pretty easy. You know what you need. All you need is a blue blazer and a... Uh, um, oh, my gosh. Is that... Like this? Holy cow. Why do I look so horrifying? Horrifying. If you can't see the video, it's worth you watch on YouTube because I bought this on Amazon. 
It's it's an Andrew Yang it's vinyl Andrew mask, Yang and, and mask. it looks like it's this, a little racist. I think it looks. It's not just racist. It's actually just a little bit scary. Like I, I look, you know, whatever, you look like whatever, a horror movie. Yeah, whatever. It's like, like the it's horror movie version of Andrew Yang. Um, but I'm going to be a ninja because one of my boys is going to be Shang Chi. So I guess I'm going to be one of the ninjas he beats up. And then Evelyn is going to be uh, Batgirl, and our other son's going to be Batman. Um, so it's a very, very big weekend in the Yang household. Evelyn's birthday, Christopher's birthday. Um, we're going to be celebrating both independently. Believe it or not, they're both born on the same day, Halloween. So you can imagine it's like a triple whammy, super festive weekend ahead for us. I am not going to wear this. Um, that that thing was horrifying. You guys should check I out the video. I feel bad that I wasted the money on it, but... Uh, I thought it'd be funny to watch. No, I mean no. It's good that you. It, it's good you didn't. Man. You, I frankly. mean, I, I, I'm. I'm. But you have that, Halloween masks on Amazon for I, you. I'm kind of pumped that it exists. But you know, if you decide to go as me, I, I think you should just use. Don't get the, that mask. Use the. You know, like uh, have your face <laughs> be free to. You know. I thought uh, you would laugh. You know, it's actually hard to get hard to get you to laugh unless we're talking making fun of uh, something intellectually. You well, know what I'm saying? I mean, I got to say, man, seeing like a horror movie version of your own face, like on, on your friend's not, face, is like, uh, I mean, if I busted out a Zach Grauman mask right now and it made you look like a serial killer. I don't know if like, I, maybe I'd laugh. Some, so someone, in the, someone in the Yang Gang went as me for Halloween, which is, uh, I checked the life goal box, I think. Uh, I didn't know I had it, but um, but it was a, a little, um, it's a different feeling. And I think the mask would have put me over the edge, I think. So anyway. Happy uh, Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween. Independent media. Support it. We're going to give you a lot more to support. Coming soon. Happy Halloween from a terrifying, slightly offensive Andrew Yang mask. And from the real one. And from the real one. <laughs> Love you guys. Later. Later.